Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible professor, clinical psychologist, writer, and author, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Hi, Alexandra, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Today, we are going to talk about taking sexy back. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about Alexandra. For those that don't know, Alexandra Solomon is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University, a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern, a regular contributor at Psychology Today, and the author of Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want. She is also the author of Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, which was also featured on the Today Show. Hi, Alexandra. How are you doing today? I'm great. Now, before we get into sex and taking our sexy back, I wanted to begin by talking about love Mm -hmm. because you're a professor of psychology at Northwestern, my alma mater, and you're from the Midwest, and I don't really peg you as kind of the new age hippie type. And yet in your book, you say that you believe tirelessly and unapologetically in the power of love. So what (laughs) brought you to this conclusion that love is such a magnificent and wonderful force? (laughs) You know, I can come at it from a number of ways, right? If we want to start with the science, the research is clear. We're now like 50 years into the study of intimate relationships. Um, You know, for a long time, psychology really fancied itself to be a hard science. Right. They were sort of, you know, the the whole like mental health field kind of emerged with an inferiority complex and was trying to prove again and again that it was as worthy of study as, you know, chemistry or biology. And so love was something that was really shunned as sort of, you know, something to be left to the poets and the hippies, as you say. (laughs) But if you but if we you know, then when when people did start to study science, you know, what's really clear is that is that um, the space between people is really sacred and it matters like high having a high quality intimate partnership, you know, ends up being the biggest piece of the pie in terms of people's um, overall general well-being like that, like loving and being loved ends up mattering more than the careers we choose, matters more than our income. Like it's a huge part of what makes life meaningful. And then the contrary is true as well, that when our relationships are suffering, especially our intimate relationships, um, there are tremendous consequences on our on our physical health and our emotional health. So mm. we really we are hardwired to connect intimately, sexually, emotionally with people. And that's and that starts when we're born and we attach ourselves to our caregivers and it comes with us and all the way till till our last breath. So it's something that I it's you know been a been a really rich field for me to study and be part of for all these years. So did you also think that love was like this wishy-washy force until you got into psychology and the science and the research? Yes. I mean, I kind of had this, you know, split. Like I I grew up being definitely identified as being an academic and a student. I was very much identified with my schoolwork. 
but I had this kind of like side hustle lesson where I was like voraciously reading romance novels and I was just so fascinated by love and sex and like what is going on. But it definitely felt like something that didn't feel legitimate or felt, yeah, wishy-washy. And then even like in college when I became a women's studies major, like I don't, in college, I never would have taken, you know, I, I teach marriage 101 at Northwestern and have for 20 years. As a college student, I would not have taken that class because I would have thought that it was somehow just wishy-washy. Like to me, feminist issues were about power and money and domestic violence and body image and all this kind of stuff. And so I wouldn't have wanted to talk about love. And what has become clear to me is that I get to I get to bring my full self to my work. I get to bring my feminist lens. I get to bring my spiritual lens. I get to, you know, bring my full self to to the work that I do. So earlier you mentioned that love is the biggest piece of the pie in terms of people's well-being as it brings meaning into our lives and happiness into our lives and actually makes us healthy. So what does the science say the connection is between love and sex? How important is love to our sex lives and how important is sex to our love lives? I love that. That's a, a beautiful question. For a long time, I think we sort of ignored this question. You had the sex therapist kind of in one part of the world and the sex therapist, the, the original sort of founding mothers and fathers of the field of sex therapy, really approached the human body as a series of sort of pulleys and levers and systems. And it was very much all about how everything was functioning and everything was performing. So it was a very sort of biological almost like an engineering approach to sex, you know, like just making sure everything was working the quote unquote right way. And then you had couples therapists and I, you know, and I was trained as a couples therapist and I was trained by some of the top folks in the field. And I remember being told like, once you get a couple to argue less and have better communication skills, the sex will follow. You don't have to target the sex directly. Like it's just going to follow when people get along better. And luckily, we are now living in an age where there's far more integration. So that question of how do love and sex flow between each other is a question that now I think has we have some richer answers. And the thing we know for sure is that when couples feel emotionally safe with each other, they're able to talk a bit more openly about their sexual connection. And the more a couple can talk about sex, the richer and more satisfying and more pleasurable and more joyful the love they make is going to be. So those, the arrow goes in both directions. And we know that couples who are making love regularly, and when we talk about making love, I'm talking about a really big like menu of options, right? Like one of the problems in the whole conversation about sex is that we really have reduced sex to just the act of penetration, which first of all, obliterates the experiences of LGBTQ plus people. And it really limits what's possible even for straight people if they are, you know, even just like that word foreplay, right? The idea that foreplay is just the stuff you do until you get to the main act. So when I talk about making love, I really want people to imagine like a, a large menu where it just is about connecting playfully, joyfully, mindfully with each other's bodies and enjoying kind of the union of physicality and emotionality and spirituality. A large menu of connecting playfully, joyfully, and mindfully. <laughs> so beautiful. So you mentioned that when, you know, when couples feel emotionally safe, that their sex is better. They're able to talk about things more and more. And that ties into this idea that you wrote about in your book, that you encourage every sexual experience to be fueled by love. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you told this to some of your college students who might be a bit 
taken aback by this this approach who might be engaged in what you might call casual sex or what you might call hookup culture. So tell us more about why you think that every sexual experience should be fueled by love. So so this this is based on this Neil Donald Walsh quote that I love, where he basically identifies that there are really only two energies in the world, the energy of love and the energy of fear. And the energy of love is that big, juicy, full body yes. It's when my mouth is saying yes, and my body is saying yes, and my heart is saying yes. And the other energy is the energy of fear, which is about control, guilt, obligation, duty. It's when my body is saying no, but my mouth is saying yes, because I'm afraid of saying no, or I'm worried about you judging me if I say no, or I have a lot of pressure on myself that I should be more chill and I should be more open. So I'm not going to say no. So that's where that every sexual encounter, I want it to be fueled by love. Not necessarily, I love you. I'm going to marry you. I'm going to be your only sexual partner forever and ever. But love meaning that I have checked in with myself and I am really aligned. And this choice comes not from a place of control or guilt or duty or a sense that I should want this, but from a place of like, yes, this is, this is amazing. So I appreciate you bringing up the kind of vulnerabilities that come when we enter into sexual relations with somebody. We worry about being judged and being shamed. And we kind of bring in what we might call like conditioning or baggage, you know, into the bedroom. And this ties a little bit into your concept of the golden equation of love. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell us what this golden equation is. So before we do that, I do just want to like close the loop on what you brought up in terms of hookup culture, because I think that that is like I, you know, I think at this point in my career, I'm in my 40s. I don't have the luxury of coming across to my students as like uh, prudish or judgmental. Like I'm just, you know, I'm and and I I really don't like I don't care about the sex that my students are having, except for that piece that we were just highlighting. Right. So I do talk to them. I invite my students to have two gut checks. And one gut check is if you need alcohol or drugs to do the thing that you want to do sexually, it's your body letting you know that you are self-abandoning, right? You are um, out of your own integrity or alignment. And that's not judgmental. That is just an invitation for them to be in touch with themselves. And then the other gut check is if you can't talk with the person you're going to be doing this with, then that's another gut check, right? It shows that you and this other person don't have the kind of safety, trust, vulnerability to be, you know, to be doing this. And so that, that to me is the problem with hookup culture is what's being unhooked oftentimes is me from my own self. So you don't slut shame. Oh my God, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> if for no other reason that my students are going to call me right out on it, but I wouldn't anyways, but my goodness, I mean, it's just like, that's, I mean, you remember your days on campus. Like I, I just love how my students, they're allies for each other. They are always looking for when my pronouns are not inclusive enough, when my, mm. I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful. It is just, and, um, and yes, definitely like always being mindful around slut shaming and, and not being sex positive. So I learn so much from them and I so appreciate the amount of complexity that they invite me into because it makes me a better therapist and teacher and wife and mother and the whole thing for sure. Well, I kind of want to check in about that second gut check that you mentioned because yes. you said if you can't talk about, you know, the activity with the person that you're with, you know, maybe consider not doing it because a lot of people don't and can't talk about sex with anybody that that they're with. Mm-hmm. 
Because how could, yeah. And I, so I have a pin in the golden equation of love. So for sure we have to go back to that. But <laughs> you're right. Like it, we, we come by our blushy, I can't talk about it, sensibilities really honestly, right? Especially if we've grown up in a bit more of a conservative cultural context or we grew up in a family system where sex wasn't talked about. I think especially, you know, young people today, if you're in any kind of system like that, what you do instead is you go to your phone. And so your sex education then is is from Pornhub. And so that can even increase the silence because the messages and images you've internalized about sex become really, really intense. So I think sex becomes all that much more daunting and all that much more performative. Like we're in a really complicated time where we, I don't know how much we're moving towards supporting people being able to talk wholeheartedly about sex. And so I do in the, in the book, I do offer some scaffolding because I think it is a lot to expect people of any age to sit down, you know, face to face under the bright lights and be like, what I would like more in our relationship is more cunnilingus. Could you please provide that to me? You know, like, <laughs> I think it's a lot <laughs> to ask for. So there, so there can be like fun ways of doing it, right? Like it's love notes back and forth, or it's, you know, while we're on a walk in the dark instead of like face to face. And I think there are ways we can scaffold this and have a bit of training wheels as we, as we develop the practice. I think it becomes easier the more we do it. I think sometimes what happens is we will do it with our friends. Like the more we're sort of like talking about sex with our friends over brunch or over wine, I think that can sort of like reduce some of the shame and normalize and help us ease into the more vulnerable thing, which is talking about sex with the person we want to, or are having sex with, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you reminded me that in your book, you do mention and make an important distinction between hookup sex and what you call self-aware casual sex. Mm-hmm. So what's self-aware casual sex for our listeners? Self-aware casual sex is when you when you know this is just this is just what the doctor ordered for right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming out of a breakup, so I'm not ready to be in, a, you know, another deep relationship, but I'm going to um, practice, you know, safety emotionally and physically and just have some experiences where I remind myself about my my connection to the erotic or uh, it may be that, you know, I'm about to move and so I need to be a bit mobile and I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to try really hard to not fall in love, even though sometimes that happens even when we don't want it to or least expect it. But there's a, that's a difference. So self-aware casual sex implies that it's driven by love, not fear. And, and that there is, that it's, that it's co-created, right? Where we're saying to each other, this is going to be no strings attached. I'm not going to expect a lot from you. And I don't want you to expect a lot from me versus hookup sex is often mixed agenda. So the research shows that very often we're hooking up in the hopes that you're going to catch feelings for me in the hopes that it's going to lead to something more. And that's when we're sort of out of our own alignment, which just puts us in a spot to do some complicated emotional gymnastics, right? Where when I start to fall for you, I'm going to feel like a failure because I was supposed to be chill and I was supposed to be able to have sex without it meaning anything. And so I don't, that's the part that I don't care for is when people put themselves through the emotional gymnastics of shaming themselves for Mm. not being able to honor a contract that didn't make sense in the first place because it was never made explicit and it was never agreed upon. And so that's sort of the distinction between hookup sex and self-aware casual Mm. sex. Self-aware casual sex is driven by love and not fear, and it's Mm co-created. Beautiful. We have to get to taking sexy back, but let's first talk about what's the golden equation of love? 
So when when it comes to love and sex, it is very easy to get focused on either what you think of me or what I think of you. Like we get very linear. We think that it's either we get focused on like the other person versus looking at the whenever, like whether it's the first date, whether it's the one year anniversary, whether it's the 20 year anniversary, everything that happens in the space between two people is a system, is a dance, it's choreography. It's the more I do this, the more you do this, the more you do this, the more I do this. It's sort of the cyclical, dynamic, relational dynamic uh, pattern. Mm-hmm. And this is especially important when, when we're looking at couples, well, any situation where there's a misunderstanding, frustrated feelings. So it could be in the dating world and it could be in an intimate partnership, but it's so easy when there's a misunderstanding to think that either I screwed up or you screwed up. Versus the idea that it's my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. So that's the golden equation of love. I bring stuff to the table. I bring my core wounds, my cultural lens, the family I grew up in that shaped my perspective. And then you bring your core wounds, cultural location, family systems dynamics. And our stuff kind of co-mingles, mixes together and creates the particular choreography of our love story. And when we look at it that way, we're much more empowered to advocate for ourselves without putting the other person down, right? We're not going to get stuck in blame or shame. We're going to look at this together. Like we're going to stand sort of shoulder to shoulder looking together at the problem. So my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. You know, it's interesting because you said your stuff is core wounds, family systems and culture situation, the stuff that you bring to your relationship. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, yeah, that sounds really tough. And then you're like, and that's what's so beautiful about it. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. why is it why is it beautiful that we bring all our conditioning and baggage and woundings into our relationships? <laughs> well, first of all, it has to be beautiful because it's completely unavoidable. Like it's just going to happen. But it's beautiful because then like that's where sexual healing happens. That's where relational healing, like our intimate relationships can become the most powerful crucible for healing ever, ever, ever. Like what when I'm working with a couple and they're able to to experience something that they haven't experienced before in the context of their relationship, like that's more so much more healing than anything I could ever offer them as, you know, a therapist working one-on-one, like for them to be validated and seen by their intimate partner, the person who knows and sees them more deeply than anybody else. It's so healing. So first of all, we can't avoid bringing our stuff to the table. Like I always say that falling in love is like shaking up a snow globe, right? It's going to, Mm -hmm. even if we are, successful in our careers, like, you know, our house is well organized, our career is on track, our bodies are fit, like we've got all this control in all of our domains. Falling in love is going to evoke old stuff. And it's going, we're going to get, we're going to feel activated on the inside. Things are going to feel messy and confusing. And so having mastery over the rest of your life, it says nothing about what's going to happen when you fall in love. Because when you fall in love, you're not going to be a master. You're going to be a student. And so the best we can do is just be willing to look at, you know, how these things are all getting stirred up. So that's, it's, it's unavoidable and it becomes like really rich fuel for understanding yourself more deeply and then um, offering somebody else that beautiful thing where you see them deeply. 
Relationships are a snow globe. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rock your world falling in love. <laughs> so I feel like you're sort of heading towards a concept that you call in your book relational self-awareness, which is shifting from looking for the right person to becoming the right person. So tell us a little bit more about what it means to become relationally self-aware. Mm-hmm. It means that when there is a, a bump in the road, which there's going to be, rather than figuring out who screwed up, I'm more curious about understanding what's happening for you and inviting you to be curious about what's happening for me. And I don't have to make one of us wrong. So being relationally self-aware means taking responsibility for ourselves in relationship and being able to kind of tolerate the complexity rather than falling back on some simplistic notion that there are winners and losers and that one of us has to be right and one of us has to be wrong because that's just a recipe for disaster and unhappiness. And that's true whether we're dating or whether we're in a relationship. So when we encounter a problem in our relationship, rather than attack the person, we are curious about their experience. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that in the modern sort of digital landscape, like when so many people are using dating apps to find love, there's a way that that it, you know it didn't start i think we i think we always have had pretty simplistic formulations of love but i think there's a way that dating apps can almost like be this perfect storm where the idea is all i have to do is keep swiping until i find the right person so it almost like plays into this idea mm-hmm. that the secret to love is finding the right person versus the secret to love is becoming the right person and i'm not saying that you could you know, have a great relationship with anybody. Like, I think you really do need to have two people who are committed to practicing relational self-awareness. But there's something about that, you know, just sitting behind our phones and swipes, you know, sort of swiping away that can lull us into the idea that this shouldn't be, love shouldn't be work. If you choose right, if you choose your soulmate, then it shouldn't be, there shouldn't be misunderstandings. There shouldn't be challenges. You know, you're like, oh, people think that find the right person means swiping right and left. And then I was like, and then after you swipe left and right, you go into a bunch of conversations and then go on a bunch of dates and then get really frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the question is like, right, well, you know, just, yes, that's right. Finding somebody, (laughs) finding the person that you can be frustrated with, you know, who can hang in there with you and you can hang in there with them. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk about taking sexy back. How do we take our, where did our sexy go and what do we do, <laughs> what do we need to do to bring it back? Put on some Justin Timberlake or? That's right. That is really the key. <laughs> well, where, so I think it's some, for, I think for some of us, we never really felt like we had it because, so this taking sexy back is definitely written with a, a female reader in mind or somebody who's been socialized in the feminine because it's really hard to talk about sex without also talking about gender role socialization and gendered Mm -hmm. messages. Although in the book, um, so first of all, I've had a a number of um, male readers have, have read the book and have found it helpful a, because it's really important whether somebody is um, dating women or not to just understand the experiences of women. I think that's a huge, like, I think that's a huge part of healing sexism is having male allies who understand the experience of growing up female. 
just the same way that a massive way of healing racism is having white people understanding the experiences of people of color. So, but then the other piece for male readers is a lot of the principles and uh, paradigms we're talking about and taking sexy back. They also apply to men, just the messaging is different, right? So we, we socialize our boys and our men in some pretty toxic ways around sex as well. I think that boys internalize lots of messages that their sexuality is, inher- is inherently predatory and dangerous and that they need to always be in charge and they need to not be confused and they need to um, show leadership and that their self-esteem, in fact, is predicated upon being able to be successful with women, um, all these things that are very problematic. But in the book, we're talking specifically about when you've grown up as a girl, you are flooded with these messages and sort of walking this tightrope between being perceived as a slut and being perceived as a prude, right? Neither one is mm. greatness. Like what would be just about perfect? And so for a whole lot of us, we end up feeling like our sexuality is the sum total of what everybody else has told us it is, what our parents have told us, what the media has told us, what our religious institutions have told us, what school has told us. We have this very sort of outside in experience of our sexual self. And so what we're doing in Taking Sexy Back is taking a journey inside of ourselves in order to figure out from the inside out who we are as sexual beings. Like where are my boundaries? How do I know what turns me on? How do I ask for what turns me on? So there's, those are the kinds of questions that we are wrestling with and sort of growing our understanding of in this book. So as in such an important distinction, you mentioned how sexuality is the sum total of what everyone has told us, which for most people isn't the most positive of messages. So mm-hmm. we move from the sum total of what culture and society and religion and whatever sex education we got has told us to coming from the inside out and exploring our authentic desires. How do we begin to go about taking our sexy back and increase, increasing what you call our map of sexual self-awareness? Mm-hmm. So I'm a therapist. I always start with the past. And so where we start in this book is, is exactly what you're saying, like looking at what was your sex education? And that's such a that right there is a really rich question to go with, because it is it's sort of like, what was your origin story? Like, when do you remember learning what sex was? Who told you and what did they tell you? And how are those messages reinforced? And it's not like I'm not proposing that, you know, you can be 30 years old and having sex and you're like actively thinking about fifth grade sex ahead. I'm not propo- I'm not making mm-hmm. that claim. But I do think that those early messages become sort of the foundation that echoes. You know, if you're first, I had a college student say to me this year when we were having this conversation, he was like, I knew what STIs were, sexually transmitted infections. I knew what STIs were before I knew what healthy sexuality was. Right. And that's really striking, right? That we are in a pretty sex negative context. And so the taking sexy back is is oftentimes like just shedding those shame loaded, fear loaded messages that tell us that our sexuality is wrong, our desires are wrong. You know, there's like the data shows that less than 5% of LGBTQ plus teens had sex education where um, their sexuality was shown in any kind of positive light. And so to be mm. non-straight, right, is to is to have your first experience of your sexual self be that somehow you are wrong. Your desires are wrong. You are wrong. And so that's another, that's a taking sexy back, right? Taking back this idea that I'm not wrong. I'm not broken. I'm not 
bad for for who I am. Hmm. Less than 5% of LGBTQ uh, people had a positive sex education that related to them. That had sex education that showed their sexuality in any kind of positive light. I certainly didn't. I mean, I, my sex, sex education did not mention queer sexualities at all. It was not right. even, I don't know, what was, did you have, what was your, what do you remember about your sex education? <laughs> <laughs> Let's flip the script. <laughs> You know, I remember more, more recently, I got certified as a sex educator with, with San Francisco Sex Information. And maybe I was, in my, I was in my 20s at some point at the time. And I was like, oh, my goodness, why haven't I learned this in the first decades of my life? This is ridiculous. So it's yeah, pretty negligible earlier on. Mm-hmm. It is like this weird mix of horrifying and empowering when you realize what you don't know, right? I mean, I learned so much writing this book and it was just like, again, ridiculous. Like, how is this not like, so that, so we all need to be lifelong learners about sex and we deserve to be lifelong learners about sex. And there are, and we need to look at, we need to be really aware of what is it for me that keeps me from getting the information that I need and deserve in order to make choices around my sexuality that feel really good and really empowering and really joyful. Mm. It's a mix of horrifying and empowering when you realize <laughs> what you don't know. I was thinking how many things that applies to. That's right. <laughs> you know, that's the beginning, right? Realizing realizing you don't know. So mm-hmm. let's, yeah, let's move forward to that like more empowering path. So you mentioned the self-awareness begins with an inquiry about like what messages do I implicitly and explicitly hold around sex and sexuality? So once I realize what I don't know, and maybe the negative messages around sex, how do I replace those messages uh, with more empowering ones other than, Mm -hmm. you know, reading your book? (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right. And I do think that is, I do think that letting ourselves grieve and be horrified and be angry is a part of it. Like that, I think we have to arrive there before we can start to take on new messages and you know, I, I was, I'm blessed at Northwestern to have a team of graduate students and actually undergraduate students as well with me on my projects. And so there was a, a crew of us that were working on this book together. And we spent a lot of time in our meetings just sort of processing that, like processing the sort of shock and horror and grief about who we weren't allowed to be when we were younger and the things that we believed and the shame that we carry. I do think there is that process of like arriving in that, letting ourselves feel that. And from there then, like from that place of grief and sort of letting go of what was, we can start to choose new new paths forward. And we do that in a variety of ways in the book. But I think one that's really important that we can overlook sometimes is about just how we relate to our own bodies and I know that people of all genders, you know, have have different kind of hangups and body image struggles. And some of us have histories of, you know, eating disorders and and things like that. But to be socialized as a woman is to feel and to be given the message over and over again that your body is kind of this like constant fixer upper project. You know, I mean, there are mm-hmm. full industries that rest mm-hmm. on women being insecure about their bodies and and it's not like that stops at the bedroom door, right? So I think there are ways that we quietly, subtly, but pervasively bring those messages into the bedroom. And if I am thinking while I'm making love with my partner, if I'm thinking about 
the position of my legs or what my breasts are doing and, and imagining what my partner is thinking about my body. All of that mental chatter takes me out of that mindful space where I just allow myself to feel the sensations, to feel the connection, to feel how love is flowing within me, between myself and my partner. But what's tricky is that I may be so used to having a critical lens on my own body that it feels syntonic. It feels like it just makes sense. It feels like, of course, I'm thinking about the state of my thighs while I'm having sex because I'm always aware of my body and I'm always in a critical space with my body. So there, there, the first step towards reclamation is even noticing what we're doing in that moment, like noticing, mm. aha, I'm focusing on how I look right now rather than how I'm feeling. What the sensation, what, what is, what is happening inside of my body? What's happening inside of my heart? So that first step, that's, that's the first step towards the shift is just noticing that we're doing it. So to be socialized as a woman is to look at one's body as being a total fixer upper. It reminds me of this idea that you make a really important distinction between being sexualized and being sexual. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners the difference between these two terms. This is something I first read in Peggy Ornstein's book, Girls and Sex. And it was such mm. a, it just hit me right between the eyes. To be sexualized is to experience your own sexuality through the gaze of another, like through the male gaze, right? To sort of mm. feel like I exist as an object. I exist, I'm gazed upon, right? My sexuality is not located inside of me. It is, it is located in your desire for me. Versus to be sexual is to kind of like, like uh, be stoking our own fire to, to have a sexual experience originate in my own connection with myself and to have that be the driver. And it's, listen, this is hard to do because we are, you know, thousands of years into patriarchy where sex has been a duty, right? Sex has been a, a wifely duty. I mean, sometimes quite explicitly. That is, you know, he makes these obligations to her and she makes these obligations to him. And so that idea that a woman does not own her sexuality, we come by that whole paradigm real honestly. You know, there's a whole lineage to that belief. It is quite radical for a woman to feel sexual, to feel like mm. sex actually is an expression for her rather than a duty for her. That sex is a space where she can unfold, you know, in her partner's mm -hmm. presence, where she can follow her own interests, her own arousal. Betty Dodson, who is one of the founding mamas of sex therapy, advises women. Can I, can I swear on your show? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Betty Dodson yeah. says, for women, you have to run the fuck. Like you have to run it, <laughs> which is so radical. Like that's a total, especially when we're talking about heterosexual sex, it's Flipping the script, right? The idea that mm -hmm. if you want to have an orgasm, you need to be able to run the fuck, like let your, you know, let your partner know what you want, feel empowered to ask for what you want. This is why mm -hmm. there's such a huge orgasm gap, oh. you know, which doesn't. So, so run the fuck, I mean, be in charge of your sexual experience. Be in charge of it uh. rather than waiting for your partner to give you an orgasm. Mm-hmm. It ties directly into what you said earlier is that we used to this outside in uh, perspective of our sexuality 
and sexualize as being the object, but coming from inside out and being sexual is being authentic with our own sexual self. Mm-hmm. And there's so many levels to it. And you sort of approach it from an integrative systemic therapy uh, approach, which looks at different dimensions of of our sexuality and, and even just being human, including physical and emotional and mental mm-hmm. levels as along with cultural. You know, we don't have time to talk about all of those. So I actually wanted to ask you about how sex can be a spiritual practice, which you talk about in your book. Yes, this was, I think this was the most daunting chapter to write. So you're, so you're right. So we, we go through the, the bulk of the book is sort of journeying through these seven different lenses. And in each of those seven spaces, we are kind of like unpacking, like we're we're like, what do you need to know here? How is it going to apply to your life? Where are the blocks? What do you need? And then we move on to the next one. And so the spiritual lens is here again, like sort of, okay, so what is the relationship between the sort of like holy trinity of you, your sexuality and your higher power? Like, how's that triangle going? You know, is there lots of flow? And it's sort of like, oh no, that's really easy. My sexuality amplifies my spirituality and my spirituality amplifies my sexuality. Like there's a lot of just kind of ease and flow and comfort there. And for some people, it's like, oh, no, 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 uh-uh. it's a massive block because what I learned is that my God is judging me and my God says sex is only okay in these situations, in these circumstances. And I am, you know, a sinner if I masturbate. I'm a sinner if I make love to somebody of the same gender. I'm a sinner if I have sex outside of marriage. So for some people, that is it's pretty unholy <laughs> trinity, in fact, right, where there's a lot of shame-loaded messages. And it was complicated because I think as a therapist, I have a long history of having been trained to be really careful of not getting in the way of people's religious beliefs, right? Like I've, I've, I grew up sort of knowing how to stay in my lane as a therapist and it is dicey for sure. So what I'm inviting, what I try it, what I do in the chapter is sort of just invite in awareness. And I tell a story about a gal that I, um, a student of mine, and and she was really struggling because she had grown up with a very conservative religious faith practice in her family that goes back, you know, generations and is a big part of her family's identity. And then she comes to Northwestern and she becomes really interested in social justice and um, expansive paradigms around gender and sexuality. And so we talked, we, we were working on this idea of like a spiritual renovation. Like, do you have to burn the whole house down or can you renovate and like <laughs> add some skylights, add a second floor, you know, like add some windows. Like, could she, could she both hold on to the roots that she had been given while also knowing full well that she needs something that is more expansive, more inclusive. So that's that's some of the work there. But that's where I went with that chapter also was introducing people to the idea of Tantra, right? So Tantra is this ancient practice where, of course, spirituality and sexuality fit together beautifully and perfectly. And it's all about energy and it's all about ritual and creating the space and holding the space and enjoying the space, which is such a part of faith practices and such a part of sexual practices, you know? Yeah, I appreciate the Holy Trinity, you, your sexuality and your higher power. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to tear down the house. We can simply renovate our place. I feel like that applies to all aspects of our experience, you know, the physically, emotional and mental. 
is that we do want to renovate it, get more light, get more flow, get more fresh air into it. So it's more life serving in our mm -hmm. sexual lives. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So we're running a little bit low on time and I appreciate everything we've talked about so far. And I, I, I just wish I was able to take your marriage 101 back in the day when I was in school. <laughs> but I have an opportunity to talk to you now. So I want to finish by asking you a question I like to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Oh, that's a beautiful question. What I wish that everybody knew about love is that you're never broken. I think we can get, I think we can get really afraid that our experiences, our traumas, our early experiences, our past heartbreaks render us somehow broken, damaged, unlovable, like too far gone. And it fuels pessimism. You know, I feel like I encounter a lot of pessimism about love. And so what I would want everyone to know is that is that nobody is broken and that there are so many beautiful tools, your podcast and therapy and books. There are so many tools that can support us on a healing journey because we are always on a healing journey. journey. Like I, I never stand on um, a sense that I'm somehow done because I'm an expert in this. And if I try to stand on that, platform, my husband would quickly <laughs> tap me on the shoulder and be like, you know, you don't have this all figured out, right? <laughs> so what? we can be, you know, we can be works in progress and wholly lovable. Hmm. We can be works in progress and wholly lovable. Beautiful. Oh, such a warming thought. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate so much that we've learned in the short time that we've been together. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you and follow you and work with you, how do they find you? And do you have any offerings you want people to know about? Sure. So the easiest and most central space is my website, which is just dralexandrasolomon.com. And I'm active on social media. So uh, Facebook, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, and then Instagram, dr.alexandra.solomon. And then offering. So yes, for sure, I'm involved in this sort of top secret project that's launching in the next month. So for sure, people should um, get in touch and learn about <laughs> that. anything about it? <laughs> I... I don't think I can. Well, I actually do think I can say the name of it. We're working on a project called Mind, M-I-N-E apostrophe D. And we're launching this new project called uh, Mind. It's going to be an app and it's um, mm. set to drop in the next month. A really beautiful mental, emotional, relational health app. So that's the biggest thing that's mm. going on. But also my newsletter um, it's a great way to keep in touch. I definitely do not, we don't, you know, overload people with, with updates, but we're working on um, some virtual offerings and anybody who's a therapist, I have a huge online course that is that for continuing education credits called Loving Bravely, helping clients who are single dating and single again, that we created through um, Psychotherapy Networker, a big mental health consortium. So that's a, a great resource to look into if you need some continuing education credits and want to learn more about helping clients heal from heartbreak and 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 date with self-awareness and and in self-care. Mm, wonderful. I look forward to your top secret project, which we now know a bit about. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's it still seems like it's secret, so but enticing. I keep I yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. <laughs> 
All right. Thanks again so much for coming on to the show and sharing your wisdom. And thank you, Learn to Love listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember that sexuality is the sum total of what everyone has told us from the outside in. And we encourage you all to take your sexy back and journey from the inside out in your own authentic desires. Don't forget the holy trinity of you, your sexuality, and your higher power. And remember, you are never broken, but we're all on this healing journey together. Thanks again for listening. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to zachbeach.com and more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Alexandra. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.